Hi guys, welcome back. I hope you're all having a great week. My guest this week is Amandip Sidhu, a pharmaceutical industry professional who three years ago actually started a charity very close to my heart called Doctors in Distress. I met Amandip recently at a conference and on hearing him speak about his story and why he started this wonderful organization, I thought I needed to get him on the podcast as soon as possible. This conversation is hard hitting. We cover some really big topics such as suicide, dealing with grief and the challenges that the NHS face. It's generally jam-packed with lots of useful and diamond piece of advice. So I'm sure you'll find it really useful. I hope you do enjoy. Mandip, welcome to the sofa. Thanks so much for joining me. We met at a conference, This Can Happen conference, uh, a couple of months back now. And I remember you so candidly talking about your experiences and what led you to starting Doctors in Distress. Just wondering if you could sort of retell that story for us today. Yeah, Sean, thanks for having me. Um, so things started for me, uh, I took a real interest in uh, health and well-being, I'd say around middle of 2018. Um, I was, I still work in the pharmaceutical industry myself. Um, and I felt myself actually going through burnout. Um, and it really got to the point where it was quite debilitating and, and probably physically and emotionally. Um, physically, I lost a lot of weight. Emotionally, I was just all over the place. And I, I really just got to the point where I had to take some time off work. So that was around September 2018. And, and for the most part, you know, I thought, okay, this is something that's just quite a sort of a light touch type of event or, or um, scenario. Um, but then things really sort of got a lot more serious for me when I noticed my older brother was going through this. Um, and actually, that was quite um, quite more devastating in terms of an impact on me for reasons that I'll probably come onto shortly. Um, my older brother was a doctor. He was a consultant cardiologist. And for the most part, he was very much a typical doctor. So very, very academically gifted. Um, sailed through his career, won all the usual prizes at medical school and, you know, got all the, you know, very, very uh, intense jobs and was of the generation that sort of worked 80, 90, even 100 hours a week as a junior doctor, which um, oh, wow. is less common now. Um, but it sort of was the norm in terms of a work culture. So things really sort of came to a head, I think, for him in around October, November 2018. Um, where he reached out to me and probably for the first time in his life, there was a bit of an age gap between the two of us. Mm. And so he reached out and, um, and asked me for a bit of a life advice and, and et cetera. But I just noticed that he wasn't sort of the same person that he was a few months or even, you know, weeks ago. It was just a very, very different personality, somebody who had become very, very jittery. And I think what I realized now in hindsight was probably going through a state of high functioning anxiety. Um, but he said that he hadn't slept, you know, properly for weeks. He was probably mm. surviving on two, three hours a night. Um, he felt that work was just too much for him. And as it turned out, retrospectively, I found out he was probably doing about 78, 80 hours a week wow. as a consultant, which he didn't really expect to do. Um, and so what happened was he, he was signed off sick by work. Um, I remember him asking me at the time that, you know, what's going to happen to me? I don't know. I can, this is the first time in his life, if you remember that, um, he ever phoned in sick or ever took a sick day, even from school. I remember at medical school, he had a, I think it was about a 40 degree temperature and still jumped on the tube and went in and said, look, I've got lectures and I've got a dissection to do and I've got to, I've got to just do it. You so you get away with that with COVID now, I think. Exactly. Exactly. But, but he was, he was sort of very much of that typical mindset of I'm indestructible. Nothing's ever going to, you know, defeat me as it were. So this is the first time that he ever sort of uh, was off ill as it were. And, um, and he just found himself in real difficulty. 
And so I went to see him uh, a couple of days after he was signed off sick. And um, when I look back and I put sort of mental images of him in my mind, he just wasn't the same person that I'd known, you know, for, for a long time. He was, um, he was 47 years old um, at that point. And I remember having a very thorough and long talk with him saying that I've been through something or I'm going through something myself. And this is something that is, you know, manageable. It isn't what you're sensing now with things like burnout is what's real and what's not real. It's very difficult to distinguish between the two. So this is something I could probably help you with. And being the typical older brother he was, um, got quite upset with me saying, well, if you're real, why didn't you tell me about it? Because I never told him. And I said, look, this isn't the day or time to, to mm, discuss that. Sure. But, um, but we kind of had a chat and I thought, mm, I'm a bit worried about him, but, you know, he's off work and he said he's going to just, you know, take some time out and relax. Um, and that was the last time I ever heard from him. Um, and as it turned out on, on two days later, um, I remember getting an email from him, which was actually an email to his wife and copied me in. And um, being of a typical, you know, scientist, you know, perfectionist, etc. Um, it was just a very long list of instructions about what to do with his life and house and finances and even sort of minuscule things about don't forget to pick up my, my daughter's prescription and um, said to his wife, look, if you've got money issues until probate or life insurance payout, come and speak to me. And just the last line said, um, I'm at Beachy Head with the car. Um, so for those that don't know, Beachy Head is a very well-known suicide spot. So um, alarm bells started going off when I received that email. And I remember I was at work in central London and um, packed up my things and just drove home and quickly showered up. And I thought, right, I've got to get to him because my brother lived in Kent. So then I got to Kent and, um, and you know, to cut a long, longish story short, it turned out that he took his own life, um, which came as a complete shock. Um, so it was something that really impacted me. And then very soon after, I realized that what happened to him was quite common amongst um, certainly a lot of doctors, but I guess sort of if I bucket it into sort of, you know, high achievers or, you know, people that you wouldn't really think as members of the public, <clears throat> which I'm not a doctor, by the way, so I'm a member of Joe Public, you wouldn't really think, you know, you've got status, you've got an income, you know, why would you allow work, you know, um, to consume you? But above all, as a medic and as a doctor, surely you can look after yourself, can't you? you you're you're a doctor, you know, you've been trained in all the, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions around that. So I learned very quickly that what happened certainly wasn't unique. And I wanted to do something, not as a legacy to him, if I'm honest, but really something to say on his behalf, because I think he wanted to send a very clear message that um, this is something that's happened to me and don't let it happen to you. So I felt compelled to start a charitable venture um, or, or charitable organisations probably more accurate to just primarily raise awareness of what happened to him mm. um, and also to others. So that's where I really took an interest in, in health and wellbeing, but particularly with a focus on, on doctors and healthcare workers. Thank you so much for sharing that. I remember hearing for the first time and being incredibly moved and again, feeling fairly, you know, it's a hard hitting story. And I think a lot of people listening to that will also feel that. You were able to reframe your loss and grief and take positive action um, and I want to know how you went about doing that and what would be your advice to people um, in a similar position? That's a very good question. I think when I reflect and sit and think about what I felt sort of three and a half years ago as we filmed this now sort of in, in mid-2022, I think I remember at the time going through a very wide range of emotions and I think one of them was probably 
a little bit of anger and sorrow. Um, but I think, as I just mentioned a few moments ago, I think my brother wanted to send a very clear message because he never lived near that place where he ended his life. It was about 100 miles away. So, you know, I, I think he indeed wanted to just send that message. And I felt, again, there's my duty that that's something that I wanted to do. Um, so I guess I sort of turned my grief, my anger, my mixture of emotions into something positive because I use certain skills that I've learned in my professional work um, work life, um, primarily from business and, and and the commercial entities, to really try and put together something that was meaningful and could help others and really stop other people feeling like my brother did, feeling lonely in particular. Um, so so I, guess, I guess looking back, I just did it. I just thought, well, look, I've got nothing to lose here. I knew nothing about the charity sector. I didn't even know how to set a charity up, so I went online and looked at it. So I guess the best and first piece of advice that I would give is if you feel strongly about something and you really want to do something impactful, um, you can sit and procrastinate um, or you can just do it. Don't be afraid of failure. Um, I don't think, you know, when you're doing something as, as sort of similar to that, that you could ever fail. Any Anything that I've done or achieved, you know, certainly with the team's help and actually primarily down to the team that I have at the charity is is all down to just learning every day, learning every week, and just learn as you go, and don't be afraid to do that. Mm. I think that's a really important point there. You you build something, and you, you learn from it, and you can build again. And if it's you're trying to achieve something positive for the world, then I think that was really poignant that you, mm. you can't fail at that. You shouldn't be scared of failure, but you can't fail at that. Absolutely, and I think I've been very, very fortunate and lucky that you know some some good people have got behind the mission. Um, and I, and I realized very, very quickly as well that I guess my second piece of advice is I wanted to do something specifically for doctors and healthcare workers and not being a doctor myself, um, I needed to bring in other people that, that understood that space a lot better than I did and could, I guess, sort of empathize and bring that extra credibility. So the, the one thing that I learned very quickly was in order to achieve what I'm wanting to achieve, and it certainly hasn't been achieved yet in order to you know, um, what we've set out to do is our mission to protect men um, the mental health of healthcare workers and stop suicide. That's going to be a long-term goal, but it's it's important to sometimes just let go of something that you feel very strongly about and just get out of people's way and just let them let them do what they need to do. But it's important to have the right people around you and accept, I, I've certainly accepted that I don't know everything, um, but I know what we want to achieve. And the, as long as we have that end goal and objective in mind, you know, things will just naturally fall or start to fall into place. Mm. Suicide is a very sensitive topic and often something that we skirt around and don't really talk about. Everyone seems to have their own story um, about suicide or have someone that they directly or indirectly know. And I want to just touch on sort of the awareness of people at the time before that person takes their life. So I feel like you have sort of three different groups. You've got mm -hmm. some people that have uh, no awareness whatsoever and someone takes their own life and it's a complete surprise. Mm -hmm. You then have the other end of the spectrum where someone was in crisis, maybe they've attempted it or they've said they would mm -hmm. and, and you're very much aware. And then you have this gray area in this middle zone, which I think you probably fell into in some, in, into some degree that there were maybe some early warning signs that someone was struggling, but there was no sign that there was a real crisis or that someone was going to take their life. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if in retrospect, do you have any advice for anyone out there that has maybe noticed some warning signs or noticed some different sort of changes in behavior? 
uh, in someone that they have around them in their life? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think I think to probably reiterate your words, it was with my brother's case. I think he very much fell in sort of that second group, or sorry, that last group that you described, that sort of grey area. Mm. I think in retrospect, when I've spoken to colleagues and people that worked with him, it was that change in behavior that was noticed. So my brother, again, like many medics and high achievers, was very much a perfectionist. And it was actually the nurses that spotted the signs of early distress, which actually turned out to be a week before he passed away, which which in retrospect was too late. But they noticed significant change in behavior around um, you know, just the way that he interacted, um, the way that he spoke. And really, uh, in, in retrospect, the way they described it was that he became very, very obsessive about just very, very minuscule things. Now, I'm not an expert on suicide and the warning signs, but something that I've learned, and when I think about my journey you know, through adverse health, as it were, and realizing how close I probably was to that end point, it was very noticeable there was a, behave- a change in behavior generally. So I-, I think it's important to remember that, you know, and the signs are very, very subtle. Is that when you, you know, when I think about my brother's case and others that have, you know, that I've come to know and learn of, that change in behavior can be very subtle, but noticeable. So I I would ask, or anyone listening to this and watching this is, if you spot signs of change in behavior in people, just for no reason, um, and just sort of looking at someone, particularly physically, when they just don't seem themselves. And I, I can't describe this, but I remember seeing my brother for that very last time. He didn't have that sort of aura of being alive within him. That sort of inner soul seemed to have just gone and disappeared. Mm. And it's very, very difficult to spot. So, you know, if that's any help, it's it's just fundamentally around behaviors and, and just very, very subtle changes. And often, again, I'm not a psychiatrist or anything, but when I speak to people of that caliber, um, it is very, very difficult to spot signs. But, you know, do what you can is, is probably my best advice. Mm. And take those steps. You know, if you do notice that, try and do anything you can in your in your power, either directly to that person or you know, signposting elsewhere. And have you got any other tips from that sort of practical perspective that you've seen with? Absolutely, yeah. So, so I would say to everyone that if you think somebody's in crisis or just needs help, um, I think the worst thing to do is ignore it. I think it's perfectly fine to say to somebody, "Look, are you okay?" Now, typically, and again, I'll reference my brother. The first response you'll normally get is, "Yep, I'm fine." Because people want to hide their distress, and and I'm I used to be like that, but then if you do, I guess what's called the double tap is to say, look, come on, are you really okay? Um, and just start to just get people to open up, and you know, I think it's perfectly fine to say to someone as you as you uh, manage and go into that conversation, not to probably ask at the outset, but as you as people start to open up and and reveal, you know, um, vulnerabilities and the amount of emotional distress that they're going through. If you sense that they're suicidal, I think it's perfectly fine to say, look, are you suicidal? Be honest with me. Have you thought about it? Have you thought about how you're going to do it? Um, you know, what stopped you? Um, what can I do to help? I'm here to listen. And then indeed, I think, as you say, is to maybe just signpost to the relevant thing. So I, I don't think it's it's a topic that anyone should be ashamed about talking about, but it should be done in a very sensitive and manageable way. Hmm. Great advice. I want to talk about burnout. Um, burnout is something that we see lots about online. I've posted about it and we can sort of think of it as one entity that is obviously a severe thing. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a severe, um, 
part of mental health that stops someone working. But actually, it sounds like your brother was probably in burnout. And burnout can be incredibly serious. It can actually result in people getting to this, you know, very low uh, feeling and taking their own life. We're seeing now an increasing number of people developing burnout not just in healthcare professionals, but also public sector workers and obviously in the private sector as well. How do you best support someone experiencing burnout or feeling the strain from work? Okay. So I think the first thing to note, and this is probably um, not widely known as it probably should be, the World Health Organization now have a definition of burnout. So this is something that didn't exist until about one and a half, two years ago. And I can't remember it verbatim, but I'm sure you know you can post links into the chat or whatever, or, or you know the, the postings about where we can find that definition. But fundamentally, the meaning and definition revolves around an exposure to chronic workplace stress that hasn't been managed appropriately, which uh, manifests itself in feelings of disengagement, you know, emotional detachment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think if you feel as though that you're burnt out, and that phrase fits then I think, number one, it's perfectly fine to admit and say, look, I could be burnt out. I could be exhibiting signs of that. I think the one sort of thing that I would say, and pardon the pun, with a health warning, um, it's not a medical condition. Exposure to workplace stress hasn't been managed properly. So this is something that really happens in the workplace. And I've spoken to people that have worked you know, 90, 100 hours a week. I've also spoken to people who've been I guess, sort of labelled or diagnosed professionally and properly as burnout with somebody who works 20 hours a week. So it isn't necessarily proportional to the amount of hours that you work. It's how you feel and it's how stressed that you are because of the exposure to to workplace stress. So if you feel as though that you're in that place, number one, I think it's important to reach out and talk to your employer. Now, I realise that not everyone has access to what I would call good, compassionate leadership and line management. Um, sometimes it's more appropriate to speak to a peer or a colleague, and I think that's perfectly fine. But mm. I think it's important to reach out and ask for help immediately. Now, there are good and there are bad employers, and I think the level of help that's available varies differently. And that's something that we work at the charity to try and change. But everything starts with a conversation, as my CEO and great friend Ann Paul, colleague at the, uh, Ann Paul um, at the doc, uh, charity Doctors in Dress, she always tells me, and this is great advice. Everything starts with a conversation. So mm. try and first reach out and find someone to have that conversation with and seek out whatever help that you need. Now, when I, when I look at something like my brother's case, sometimes, um, and something that I've learned actually through personal experience is lazy people don't burn out. So if you're burnt out, I think it's important to remember that work has probably been quite a protective factor in your health. But then it gets to the point where it becomes destructive. So it it can be very, very draconian to sort of say, right, you're off work now because you've been working so, so hard for the benefit of your employee, your colleagues, yourself, et cetera. And I think to suddenly be told or hear or make yourself suddenly, you know, with a red line, say, right, go and disappear. I don't think that's the right approach for all people. I think sometimes what's better is to gradually draw back from work. And again, by reaching out early and asking for help, to reduce workloads and intensity of stress, get it back to a manageable level. And so you're not made to feel that you're suddenly useless or not contributing because that's probably what led to my brother's passing. And I think once you reach that point where you've got that sort of little bit of balance and Mm. positive movement forward is to then withdraw back and say, right, I'm going to take some time off and heal. 
And again, I think something that I've learned with burnout recovery, I mean, I'm sort of, what, three, three and a half years on, um, is to recognize what the triggers are. So, you know, if you find yourself doing lots of hours or you're taking on lots of meetings and just taking on other people's workload and you find yourself having those sort of physical symptoms of burnout, like anxiety, palpitation, sweating, you know, Sunday blues happening on a Saturday morning, which is what happened to me, um, just recognize those triggers and, and find ways to, to deal with that. And sometimes yoga and mindfulness can help. It has its place, but it's not going to cure, it's not going to cure the root causes of burnout, which is chronic workplace stress. I think that's a great, that's a great answer. And I, I love how you, I always talk about this catch 22, uh, between people that want to achieve and they have this high level of productivity. And by the very nature of work, they get a lot from that. But actually, it can tow over the line and become quite destructive, which is the word used. Uh, and it's about finding that balance. And I think that's a really interesting insight that sometimes for some people, it isn't an answer of just stopping the work or just telling them to do nothing. That can actually cause the problem to be exacerbated. Mm-hmm. But trying to find that sort of that happy balance, that, that medium there. And I think that's a really interesting point. So this series, I've been lucky enough to partner with one of my favorite brands, Heights. In an ideal world, we would all eat a diverse, nutritionally complete diet that ensures we meet all of our nutritional requirements. However, if you're anything like me, you'll know that life likes to get in the way, and that's not always possible. That's where Heights and their Smart Supplement comes in as the best insurance policy for looking after me and my brain. The Smart Supplement consists of just two easy capsules taken every day, and has been formulated by neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart and dietitian Sophie Medlin. The all-vegan capsules are packed with 20 essential vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and healthy fats, which are designed to support your brain, nervous system, immune system, and even your sleep. I personally noticed an improvement in my focus, boosting my energy levels. I'm more motivated than ever on my goals, and I even make it to the gym more often when I take heights. So if you want to get started with brain care, Heights are giving all of my listeners a 15% off your first quarterly subscription with the code Straight Talking. Head to yourheights.com and use the code Straight Talking and start taking care of your brain and body today. You mentioned the charity Doctors in Distress um, that you started. Let's focus a little bit on that. Can you tell us a little bit about what the charity does and its role with healthcare professionals? Absolutely. So the charity exists to protect the mental health of healthcare workers, so not just doctors. Um, and we basically, we want to stop suicide. Now, I can go into a long rant about the levels and measurement of suicide, etc. Um, and there's lots of information out there about the rates of suicide in medics and healthcare workers generally. But on average, um, a healthcare professional in the UK takes their own life. It, uh, per week, it's about two. And that needs to reduce. So what we try and do by protecting mental health care, but by protecting the mental health of healthcare workers, I know that's a bit of a mouthful and we are working on that. <laughs> it's around providing immediate short-term solutions. And at the moment, we do that primarily by running support groups and other programs like creative writing, photography, you know, artistry, etc. But fundamentally, when I think back to what probably would have saved my brother and what I know has helped others is making sure that doctors don't feel alone. And they have a very, very secure, confidential environment where they can talk about the emotional impact of their work. Something I realized about a lot of healthcare workers is everything's very much patient and care focused, um, but that's very much external. There isn't really much of a framework in certainly in our NHS here in the UK that looks at the care and well-being of its employees and the people that deliver that care. So 
we try in our, in our own way with the resources that we have um, to provide that sort of sense of belonging. So, for example, we run support groups um, on various topics. And mm. one of the first we ever did were was doctors with long COVID. Uh, and this was about two and a half years ago. So before COVID was even sort of understood um, as a as an, you know, its parameters understood as a disease, doctors themselves were getting longer, long COVID symptoms. And, you know, some of the stories I heard about, you know, the impact of that on doctors, not from a, a medical perspective, but from a mental health perspective mm. was amazing. So, you know, we found there's a lot of stigma in the healthcare profession. So I think that's one area that we really want to focus on a lot more. A good example from that group was a doctor that was actually sacked because they had long COVID and that was a GP. So their fellow medical professionals judged them on that, on that element, which is something that we're trying to change. But, you know, I mentioned stigma as one area that we want to basically deconstruct. We want to encourage people to help, uh, to, we want to encourage people to reach out and ask for help when they need it. Um, and that influences cultures and behaviors mm -hmm. of both medical and healthcare professionals, but also the health systems. So, you know, if you need help, don't judge somebody and, you know, be punitive on them and say, look, you're weak and, you know, give them the right level of support. But I think it also comes down to compassionate leadership. So, you know, I talked a lot about our support groups as well. That, that, that's a bit of a sticking plaster on the problem. But we're also trying to do some more long-term things with the NHS and also the government as well um, to try and make sure that healthcare workers have the best possible environment that they, they, they can work in and look after members of the public like me and you. Mm. I feel like with my experience, things are fragmented when it comes to looking after the healthcare, the, the mental health or the, the health of the workers within the NHS. And it sounds like you, you've got a great uh, vision there and working with the government to try and make sure that that becomes a little bit more of a cohesive mm -hmm. uh, program. My role at the moment since February is to look after long COVID patients. And I don't speak to many healthcare professionals, but I speak to members of the public. And there's always a huge problem with getting back to work and the effect that that has both on trying to get back to work, but you can't. So you therefore, you know, you don't feel like you're living up to your normal life or contributing to society. And then vice versa, if you go back to work and it's the struggles that you have because you have brain fog or you have extreme fatigue um, and you can't do your job properly and the stress that that places on you. And I can only imagine a stressed healthcare worker with long COVID and the, you know, the damaging effect that that, that can have on you. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, again, these groups are confidential, so I've got to, you know, respect that. And, you know, but, you know, I think it comes down to stigma as well. And, you know, in, in what you just said there about, you know, the impact of long COVID in members of the public, as it were, there is that desire to get back, etc. But um, certainly in get back to a normal lifestyle, etc. we'll call it. But in healthcare workers, again, because Something that we see, and I see, this is just my personal view, but, you know, th there's very much that sort of indoctrination um, amongst healthcare workers that, you know, you've got to exist and outpour that care and compassion mm. to others. But if you don't have that for yourself, then how can you do that for others? Yeah, absolutely. So we mentioned the C word, you said COVID. Things seem to change a little bit when COVID happened and there seemed to be a, a bit more emphasis on staff well-being, things were done within hospital. And I think other industries also noticed that. Mm. The pandemic seemed to calm down and with that, I think there may be some less emphasis being placed on the well-being of staff. Have we just drifted you know, back to normal? So I just want to know if you're seeing that within the charity. That's a very good question. I think the short answer is yes. Um, something that we're seeing a lot of is people reporting in 
again via their support groups that we run saying particularly I think I think it's multifaceted I think number one from the employer in the NHS there's a a mindset of okay we've dealt with the pandemic now um, but people are still in sort of I call it shell shock you know that that doesn't go away very very quickly people have you know in your wonderful profession and you have obviously seen some horrific things had to make some very very difficult decisions with limited resources um, and treating very very sick patients and the impact of that doesn't go away very very quickly because as we sort of you know discuss this now in the middle of 2022 there is a huge backlog to to clear in the nhs and it doesn't seem to be dimin- diminishing in any way um i myself have been part you know um i was going to say victim to that but i don't know what word to use but my son was diagnosed with a disability a year ago and i've had to wait almost a year just to see a pediatrician he's only four so this is something that's affecting everyone and it's it's you know upon the staff particularly it must be very very impactful but i think the pandemic as you as we're sort of talking about the employer has kind of got this mindset look we've just got more to do and we haven't had time to think to breathe to de-stress to decompress to you know, to, to outpour what we've seen in the pandemic. We've got an, yet another job in hand. And I think that's quite indicative of the state of the health systems at the moment. And as a charity, we can't be political or anything. So I've got to be careful of what I say. But the truth is the truth. You know, I don't think anyone can deny that the, the health systems are, are really under stretch at the moment. But I, I, think, I think people themselves just haven't had time to breathe and think, as I said. And, you know, we hear stories of staff rooms being taken back from staff, uh, mm. particularly in secondary care, we all know about the pressures on GPs at the moment, and you know it, it's it's a very very worrying time at the moment. And I think the pandemic did bring a spotlight, you know, particularly from the public onto healthcare workers, and probably me being a little bit too cynical. Um, I, th- I think at the time the public thought, oh god, there's something here that's an unknown, um, and w- and I need. I, I suddenly realised now I need I need that help from healthcare workers. Um, so I'm going to do everything I can to really support that. And it was wonderful. And I'm sure it is great to see and receive that, that level of warmth and support. And, and to be honest, I don't see that now. I see very much of, okay, I've had a, for those that have had it, I've had a, a vaccination, a jab, the job's done now. So I've got to now crack on, et cetera. And I, I realize there's lots going on in the world. Um, but we seem to have forgotten some, you know, some of the basic fundamentals around caring for others, caring for those that care for others. And just just remembering that we're all human at the end of the day and just kind of forgetting that, you know, some of the things I think we've learned in the pandemic have have sadly drifted away. But um, that's just my personal view. Mm. I can echo some of that for sure. The NHS is a wonderful organisation and, you know, we're both very fond of the NHS. Yes. Um, But it has its challenges, as you mentioned, and it's by no means perfect. We all have our stories, good and bad, about the NHS. What do you think the main challenges are that the NHS is facing now? And would you have any sort of thoughts on how it goes about improving that or how we go about improving that? Yeah, that's a, good, that's a very good question. So I, I think fundamentally, this is something that's been bubbling away for years and years. Yeah. Now, I, I'm not going to sit and profess to even state or understand how the NHS works. I don't think there's many people right now that could probably understand it. Because, again, for those that don't work within the system, it's not a system or a single organisation. It's lots of things mashed together and it's undergoing even more change at the moment with the removal of CCGs over to ICSs in primary care, for example, um, and all these health boards, etc. But 
I think fundamentally, and actually my brother said this before he passed away, was I think fundamentally the, the NHS just doesn't have enough resources to treat the number of patients and people within its care. And, and that can be broken down into, you know, its links into social care, for example. But, you know, if we think about the population of the UK over recent times, um, there are more of us here in the UK and we are older. So that has a double impact. But it, in terms of the number of beds, the number of staff, equipment, re, I'll call it resources, that doesn't seem to have scaled up um, proportionately to that growth and explosion in population. Um, so it's something that's been just, as I said, but you know, been bubbling away for, and we're now really starting to see. And I think because of the pandemic, it's put a real lens and exposed, you know, certain weaknesses and challenges within the system. Sort of how under pressure it really is, in terms of fixing that going forward. Um, I'm not going to sit and profess to answer that fully, um, but it's not something that's going to be fixed overnight. There isn't really a magic wand that's going to go right. Let's make it all disappear. I think for the aspect that we look at at the charity particularly, it's around workforce and retention. Um, at the moment, as we film this in mid-2022, there are droves of people leaving the NHS because we all know it's a challenge system, as you just said, but it, you know, I think what we see and hear from a lot of people is it doesn't really look after them. Um, and pay is actually not a very, very huge part of, of um, the feedback that we see. It's around... It's just around lack of resource, and I think it must be incredibly frustrating for people like yourself and your your peers to be in a scenario where you want to give great care to patients, but you just don't have the time and resources to do it. And so that naturally frustrates people. I think it it just then makes people leave, and then you have a an even more added pressure on the ones that are left behind uh, and working in that system. Um, and it's a bit of a vicious circle. And you know, we see in the media talking about recruitment of new of extra doctors, extra nurses, etc., but that takes time. You know, it's not something that you can magic magic up in six months. It takes mm. years and years. And you know, a lot of the public think, well, it's five years to be a doctor. Well, yeah, but then you've got probably another ten years of extra training as you progress to to get to sort of a you know, like senior registrar, as I called it, or consultant level, which is the accurate measurement of a doctor. So I don't think there's really an easy answer to how to fix the NHS, but I don't think anyone could ever disagree that there is something that needs fixing and it's a very, very complicated answer. Mm. Agreed on that one. You have a very unique window into the you know, situation healthcare workers are facing now and you just said droves are leaving. Yeah. I've certainly seen that through colleagues of mine and, and people I speak to online. Do you have any sort of predictions for what's going to happen with the, with the, with the NHS and that current situation at the moment? Um, to be honest, it's not an area of focus particularly, but, you know, again, we, we really worry, and I personally worry that if this trend continues um, two, three years from now, where are we going to be? Um, again, it, it really depends on sort of the immediate short-term fixes, if there are any, um, but it certainly is a real worry. So it's not something that we really are able to sort of have a particular lens on or, or able to influence hugely is as a charity, we're just trying to do the best that we can for those that, that, that exist as healthcare workers. And, and that's what we need to try and focus our resources in right now. I think that's all we can do as people. And I'm, I'm aware that the stuff we're talking about here is, you know, it's, it's 
can be quite depressing in some ways, but that's the current state of affairs that we're in. It's what I've seen personally, and it's what's been spoken about. And anyone in the know, like yourself, will will be able to see that you know the situation is fairly grave at the moment. Mm. I like to give people actionable advice, though, and I don't want to leave anyone feeling like they're helpless in this situation. What do you think people can do as individuals if they're listening to this to support healthcare workers or public sector workers or anyone? Yeah, so, so I think I think I'll break that down into sort of two buckets. I think as members of the public, just accept that there are constraints within the system. Um, I cited an example earlier. I myself have had to wait a year just to get my son seen to have his condition looked at. So I, I think we should just accept and contain our frustration and anger, not on the people that we're, we're interfacing with on the front line, as, as it were. Um, just remember that people are working in a broken system and. When we look at my brother's example, he passed away in November 2018. So, you know, this isn't a recent problem. This is something that's been been there for a while. So just accept that, and it's very, very difficult to do, I know. Um, you know, I don't like seeing people waiting in A&E for eight hours. I had to do that a few months ago. Um, you could probably see on camera I had shingles. So, um, And for anyone that's had shingles, I would not recommend it. It's the most painful thing <laughs> I've ever had. Um, but I remember sitting there in A&E myself and, um, you know, just looking at the people around me. For the most part, every, all members of the public were really, really good and just very patient, etc. But there are a few people that just get overly frustrated. So I would say to members of the public watching this, try not to get frustrated. The people that you're looking at and expecting and will get care from, you know, they need care themselves. They're working in a broken system. Um, have a thought for them. You know, please just think about that. I think when I flip it around on people on you know at the front lines and giving you know the public the care that they they deserve and want to, just remember you are working in that broken system. You cannot fix the system by yourself, and I think that's where my brother probably took on a little bit too much. He felt as though that he had to put in all those extra hours to carry the system. That's not sustainable. Um, and I think I think the one biggest single message that I really want to give to any healthcare workers listening to this is. You have to accept and understand that your own health and happiness comes first. It's great thinking about the patient and others, and that's fantastic, and it's very admirable admirable that you're wanting to do that, but you've got to look after your own needs first. Mm. And please don't end up like my brother did and many others where you go the extra mile in looking after patients and forget to look after yourself because it will catch up with you. Yeah, you have to do that in a sustainable way otherwise it comes to a point where you won't be able to do that anymore for yourself. Absolutely. And and I realize that there are pressures from colleagues and you think naturally about your colleagues and your team members. But um, again, you just accept that your own health and happiness has to come first. Mm. And a more generic question um, and something that I think that you've done very well in, in your life when you've dealt with this we go through life and we see injustices mm. and we want to make a change but then perhaps circumstances don't allow or we don't get round to it you were able to actually take action yourself so for anyone out there that has maybe noticed something that they're passionate about or noticed something that has has got under their skin but they, you know they see an injustice have you got any more advice on on that on how they take action yeah i think I was probably quite fortunate is that when I set up the charity, I was able to take a career break. So um, I'm in my mid-40s, and I was fortunate enough to sort of build up um, some savings for a rainy day. Um, and when I looked out the window, it was raining. So um, I was very, very fortunate 
in that I could just stop for a year, stop my career progression and reevaluate what I was doing with my life and, and set the charity up and focus on that. Now, I realize not everyone's in that scenario. Um, so, so the first thing that I would say to anyone that finds himself with time lacking or is able or is not able to probably focus as much time as they want to on fighting any injustice is don't let it consume you. Um, and that's one thing I learned quite early on is that it's something that can really consume you. Mm. And and actually one thing I've learned from, um, from studying the way that people with addictions, for example, recover and manage their lives going forward is is sometimes, and actually quite a lot of the time, is just sometimes be able to accept the things that you can't change and influence easily. You can't fight the world. You can't take on everything in day one and achieve everything. Um, if you want to go down the path of fighting injustice or... Um, so it sounds very grand that. I don't see myself as doing that, but it's just <laughs> it's just doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, and just accepting that you can't you can't achieve everything on day one. It, it's, it's a marathon. And actually... You know, I'm quite lucky in that um, I'm in terms of what we're trying to do at the charity Doctors in Distress is is trying to practice what we preach. You know, we say to people, it's not a marathon. You know, you don't have to work 20 hours a day. And we try and take our own advice and say, look, we're in this for the long haul. So it can be a little bit frustrating and um, saying, look, you know, there are people suffering. We want to get on with it. And you know, particularly when we approach fundraisers to, to gather more resources for what we want to do. We're saying, look, there are people suffering. We want to help them. Um, but not everyone has that priority. And I think, I guess the second point um, or the second answer to your question is, you know, not everyone's priority is the same as you. And again, I think it comes back to just accepting that maybe that's something that you can't change quickly and easily in the short term. So I, I think those are my two biggest pieces of advice. But I think it comes down to, I think, what we spoke a little bit about earlier. I guess my third one that I would add is, if you feel as though it's the right thing, JFDI, and I'm sure you could work out what the <laughs> F means, but just do it. Um, anything that you're doing is more than doing nothing. Hmm. One of my very good friends has a has a little quote that, that he sort of came up with the other day, which was impatient with actions, patient with outcomes. And by that, just do it. Take some action, but don't be upset if the outcome that you desire doesn't happen straight away. And I think it's brilliant for anything anything business related or trying to make some sort of change in the world yeah. you need to break things up into little steps and but you do that by taking action consistently and the outcome will come you know and if it doesn't come you, you know that's because you know other things will have happened in your life but. absolutely and i think i think it's a learning journey as well and look sometimes things fail yeah and i think Touch wood, hopefully, you know, so far as the charity's what just recently celebrated its three-year-old birthday, it has achieved and it has helped healthcare workers. Now, that might not be the case in a year's time, um, but that's something that, that I would accept. And, you know, if there's a learning point to be had over that, then as long as that's been learned, then, then fair enough. So mm. I, I think that's an important part. It's all about a learning journey as well. Absolutely. You alluded to you taking your own advice. You've obviously been through some of your own mental health battles yourself. How do you look after your mental health? I could probably do a little bit better, but I'm now very, very good at recognizing what triggers me going down the certain path of, um, of adverse mental health. Um, I'm of the personality type that I'm a bit of an overthinker. So if I find myself dwelling on a subject um, probably a little bit too much and too long, um, without coming to sort of a quick outcome or an outcome that feels comfortable, I realize for myself that's a trigger. 
Um, and again, it's accepting things that I can't change. I, I'd actually say the biggest thing that's probably helped me is indeed that piece of advice is I've learned to let go of things that affect my health that I can't affect. Mm. Um, and there's lots of stuff that's going in the world that, that is quite worrying. We've, you know, things like climate change and there are things that we can do, for example, but, you know, I, I can't come up with a brand new source of energy, for example. So I'm not going to sit and worry too much about that, but just do what you can in the confines of what you're able to do and can do. But for me, for me particularly, something that I've learned is up until very recently, I always thought that looking after myself and my health and happiness was selfish. And I'm now getting better and I'm, I still need to get a little bit better and accepting that that's not selfish. Looking after myself is not selfish. So, you know, if I need to go and take some downtime, I've got two kids. If I need to just get out of the house and jump on my bike and, you know, cycle ride, etc., that's what I need to do. And that's yeah. totally fine. It's, it's, it's just accepting that self-care is important. Um, and just realizing that, uh, you know, if I need to sit and indulge or whatever I need to do to make myself happy. And, uh, and again, whatever makes your own, whatever makes yourself happy, just do it. Doesn't matter. Don't, don't worry about what other people's judge that to be. If you want to go out and go for a long walk or you want to go out for a nice meal, just do it. Just, just, just do what you think is right. And if it makes you happy, just do it. It's a bit of a skill that being able to take a thought um, and make sure that doesn't bother you too much and being able to put it aside for, an, for another day and, you know, not trying to get too triggered on it. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, I mean, I've never taken any sort of mindfulness courses or anything like that. And, and you know, I, I am an advocate of stuff like that. But it's, it's, for me personally, it's around, I know there's, you know, techniques about controlling one's thoughts, etc. But again, yeah, the, the, I've probably said it a million times in this, but I'll say it again, it's, it's, the biggest factor that I found that helps my mental health is just accepting the things I cannot change. That's, that's the biggest piece of advice that I would give that's worked really well for me. Yeah, it's cracking advice. How do people get involved with Doctors in Stress? How do people help out and do their bit? Yep, so we are a charity. Um, we rely on private donations. We don't get very much from the NHS or elsewhere. So if people want to get involved, please Google us um, or other search engines are available, I guess is the phrase. Um, <laughs> We're all obviously on social media. Uh, we have a website, so Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc., LinkedIn. Um, just do an internet search for doctors in distress, and if you are able to support, you know, your money and support would really help uh, allow us and get us the resources that we need to save healthcare workers' lives. Which, again, I think you for members of the public is to remember that doctors, nurses, etc., have positively impacted every single person in this country to a degree. And by supporting our charity, we are a great way to, to say thank you back to the, all the healthcare workers that care for us. Mm. I'm obviously biased, but it's a great cause. Thank you. It's been a wonderful chat. Thanks so much for chatting to me. I always sort of finish off with this question, but what would be your one best single bit of advice for someone looking to improve their health and happiness? Okay. So I would say to anyone is everyone has health. That's physical health and mental health. When you see other people, particularly as we live in an age of social media savviness, is a lot of people nowadays put on a facade. We all have a personality and health behind that. And everyone has vulnerabilities. And it comes down to some are very good at hiding it, covering it up. Some people are not. And that's perfectly fine. And I think, I think the most important thing and the first step, or the first two steps, is accept that you as an individual have vulnerabilities and importantly 
everyone has vulnerabilities, whether they care to admit it or not. But everything starts with a conversation. It's important to say what's on your mind, to talk things out, and to find a forum where you can do that confidentially and without fear of retribution, and importantly, without shame. It's a great bit of advice to finish. Amanda, it's been great to chat to you. Thanks so much for coming. Cheers. Thank you.